Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast. I am your host, Andrew Dunkley, and with me, as always, astronomer at large, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Lots going on. Lots to talk about. We're going to uh, focus on uh, the rivers of Mars. They've uh, revealed what Mars used to be like, and it looks like it um, it did have a lot of activity, but uh, river flows have, uh, have made the news, and we'll talk about that. A rare asteroid spotted by Hubble. And a couple of interesting questions. One about whether or not our solar system might have had a rogue planet in the past that got kicked out because it was a black sheep. And uh, a question about the expansion of the universe and the redshift issue. Um, the suggestion is if we're getting redshift from the most distant ga- galaxies, doesn't that mean that things are slowing down rather than speeding up? We'll try and figure that one out for you, Jeremy. And also thank you to Sean for his question. But uh, we'll start off today with a an announcement about an announcement, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, you can't say that we're we're nothing if we're if we're not on the ball here. <laughs> Absolutely. We announce announcements. We are preempting something that hasn't been uh, announced. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, just for for the you know for the benefit of all the, those space nutcases out there who who seem to enjoy our show, and we're two of the biggest space nutcases, of course. Uh, we've had a, a, an announcement of a press uh, conference, a media conference, which will take place next week as we speak. Uh, in fact, it's scheduled for the tenth of tenth um, of April European time. Uh, which is going to be about results from the Event Horizon Telescope, which you and I have spoken about before. And what we've always said is, when are, they, when are they going to announce the results? Yeah. Well, now we know it's the 10th of April. <laughs> and you can be sure, uh, all you uh, listeners to Space Nuts, you can be sure that you'll hear the news from us. Yes, we're looking forward to that. Uh, we can't tell you anything right now because they haven't told us. We just wanted to tell you that they're going to tell us so that we can tell you. <laughs> And that's, after that, you'll know. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that. That's, uh, that's next week. But uh, let's get on to this subject of the rivers of Mars. I actually read a pretty intense article about this a um, couple of days ago, and I was fascinated. You know, I, I've got a, a thing for Mars, but um, th- this, this discovery suggests that uh, the activity of, of rivers particularly went on for a long time, even after the atmosphere was stripped from the planet, which I find fascinating. Um, yeah, and uh, look, um, I'm glad you've read an in-depth article about this because you might be able to help me figure it out as very, well. Very, very doubtful. <laughs> because you can't have no atmosphere and rivers. It don't work that way. <laughs> yeah, and that's the big surprise in this. Yeah, that's right. So there's something that we're clearly missing here. Um, But the story is that uh, the and this comes from 
basically the the geomorphological evidence that's just the shape of the landscape uh from on mars from mostly from uh, orbiting spacecraft which have got very sensitive radar uh scanning devices on that give us very accurate um maps of the height of the terrain on mars uh, you know so we we know that to uh, actually it's probably to a few centimeters it, it was a few meters but it's probably centimeters now um so the uh, the evidence seems to be that's coming from that that mars actually had really significant rivers of water uh flowing on its surface and these are bigger rivers than we've got on earth uh, at least wider maybe not bigger in terms of volume of of liquid but certainly wider uh, and that uh, seem that the, the other piece of evidence is that because they are of a significant size they are now thought to have lasted for a long period in fact they're talking about the research group who are looking at this stuff um who are based, I think, in the University of Chicago, uh, they're talking about them lasting for a billion years. Mm. Uh, so rivers flowing for a billion years is a significant length of time. And what it, I mean, it, it's no surprise that Mars had rivers because we have um, absolutely overwhelming evidence that Mars went through a period in its history when it was warm and wet, like the Earth is, with a probably an average temperature very similar to ours, which is about 15 degrees Celsius when you look at it across the, the whole globe. Um, but that that changed, and it's thought to have changed round about um, 3.7, 3.6 billion years ago, when uh, Mars was basically a billion years old. Now, that uh, change is thought to have been due, we've spoken about this before, that Mars lost its greenhouse blanket because there's no plate tectonics on Mars, uh, and so the fact that there's no magnetic field, uh, there's a lot of um, bombardment by the solar wind, all of that stuff basically stripped Mars of much of its atmosphere. Of course, it still does have an atmosphere, but it's only a hundredth of what our atmospheric pressure is here on Earth. So um, the but the suggestion from this research group is that, OK, Mars lost much of its atmosphere 3.7 or so billion years ago, but the rivers were still flowing then. Um, and that, uh, and, and they've, they've not just flowing in one place, but in many, many different locations on the planet's surface. And so this leads to a real puzzle in terms of the Martian climate. How can you lose an atmosphere and at the same time have a liquid water on the surface? Because no atmosphere means low pressure. And mm. what low pressure means is that things boil away. Yeah. Um, they, you know, the, the boiling point reduces. Uh, so there are some details in this that certainly I'm not uh, comprehending at the moment. Maybe you are because you read the in-depth account. Yeah, well, I read the article, but it, 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 the article indicated that the the issue was we don't understand why That's this right. could have existed. Why, why for a billion years rivers flowed on Mars when there was absolutely nothing to protect them? <laughs> yeah, so somewhere there is a... There's a greenhouse effect uh, taking place. You know, we um, we we really need to see more details of what these scientists are suggesting. Um, it's it's very interesting stuff. You know, you don't go out on a limb like that and say, well, we've got a real puzzle uh, that it's hard to explain these uh, lakes and, and rivers uh, with the with the details that we have. 
Uh, you don't go out on a limb like that and say if you, if you don't have really strong evidence to back up what you're saying. So I think this is a story we'll hear more about. Mm. Maybe we'll understand it a bit better the next time you and I visit it for Space Nuts. Yeah, and, and they're talking like 200 rivers. They're talking, yeah, you know, yeah. it's not just yeah, one or yeah. two tributaries no, right. here or there. lots of rivers. And well, of course, sure. the study that's gone into Mars to date has proven that there is water there. It's all under the surface. Uh, what, what's the depth of the water if it was all melted down and covered the planet? Oh, <laughs> that's uh, 11 metres, but yeah. I think that's just from the southern ice cap alone. That's a figure I need to check, actually, because it uh, it's something I re read rather a long time ago, and that might have been revised. But that's but, still yeah. a lot of water. It's so, a huge amount of water, yeah. Incredible. So, I mean... It it sounds like not all of it's boiled off. It just froze. No, that's right. Well, uh, well, we we believe that most of the water on Mars did freeze, and and we we see it there. It's uh, you know it, everywhere you look, there's water. Uh, a lot of it's covered up with with um, the Martian dust, that ubiquitous red dust that there is on Mars, but plenty of water frozen. So uh, it, it prompts a couple of questions in my mind. When Mars had an atmosphere and obviously had uh, flowing rivers and and lakes and you know liquid water water. Is there any suggestion that it may well have also had some some form of life in uh, uh, you know in in the form of vegetation perhaps or algaes or or something along those lines I, I, I guess I'm wanting you to paint a picture as to what Mars might have been like had it you know, not lost its atmosphere. Well, I've got a lovely artist's impression of a green Mars, which is beautiful. Uh, it's got clouds and lakes and seas and rivers. It's a map of the, a, 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 you know, like a, a space picture, but uh, and, a, and an accurate one too, an accurate portrayal of what Mars might have looked like if it had, if it had um, vegetation on it. This is, but this is a really difficult question to answer, Andrew, and it, it goes to the heart of one of the whole issues of astrobiology, which is. Well, microbial life might turn out to be common, but moving from that to multicelled life, and that's what, you, you know, when you're talking about vegetation, that's what you mean, multicelled organisms. Mm. Uh, that could be a very, very big step. And there's a whole um, body of astrobiologists who believe that that might be very rare, which, um, you know, that step to get from a, a microbe up to something uh, that's got multi-celled a multi-celled structure so, so um, could it be said that mars just didn't quite get an opportunity to make that leap because of so. the stripping of the atmosphere well that that's possible that's right mm. um what I was going to say was we, we know it's a rare phenomenon because it only happened once on Earth. We had we had um, microbes for two billion years before there was that step to get from a microbe to a multicelled organism. And it only happened once because all life on Earth can trace its ancestry back to something called Luca, the last universal common ancestor. Um, and that's why astrobiologists are getting more and more depressed about the idea of there being anything other than microbes out there. Notwithstanding that, microbes of course themselves will be a huge discovery and so far on mars we've not seen any firm evidence of them although there has been um you know that there's, there's circumstantial evidence first of all in the form of these methane outbursts that we find on mars we don't know where they come from it could be microbes burping or something like that um but there's also some evidence from i think it was curie uh, the curiosity sorry not the curiosity the opportunity rover uh, that found um, rocks with a signature very, very similar to rocks on Earth, which are known to be fossilized microbial mats. 
uh, and they're at the place called El Tatio in Chile. Um, yeah, the, the, this is the whole, you know, this is why Mars is so exciting, because we're finding all these things out about it and trying to piece together the puzzle. And I think you and I would put odds on bets that at some point we'll discover evidence of either past or present microbial life, and that will be a sensational discovery. Okay, let me fast forward. Now, we, we've talked about the possibility of terraforming Mars if we ever need to leap from this planet to that and, and making it livable. If Mars can't hold an atmosphere because of its lack of tectonics, then how would terraforming succeed or be able to be maintained? It wouldn't because it's a bonkers idea. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> it is an idea that's being... It yeah, a lot of people have talked about it. Uh, look, the engine, the technology that you'd need to do that is far beyond anything we have at the moment. And um, it, it's a very good question. If you did, you know, if you slam an asteroid into it, an ammonia-rich asteroid, asteroid would do it, uh, would give you a, a carbon blanket, you know, a greenhouse blanket around Mars. The temperature might go up a bit, and hopefully that makes it a bit nicer if you can breathe ammonia. Um, but... Um, you're right. How do you keep it that way? Mars is too small to sustain plate tectonics, and so uh, you lose your atmosphere. You get the same, exactly the same phenomenon happening all over again. Mm, okay, there you are. Asked and answered. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Fred. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by TechRadar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash Space. That's T R Y E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more, and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. 
space nuts. Now, Fred, a uh, topic we have discussed many times, and that is asteroids. Uh, we've also talked about the Hubble Space Telescope many times. Uh, and now we've got a situation where the Hubble, along with NASA, have uh, combined to find a rare active asteroid. What is, you know, define an active asteroid as against a piece of rock and ice. <laughs> Passive one. Basically, an active asteroid is one that's falling to bits um, mm -hmm. because it's uh, it's losing its um, its rocky mantle. So, d d just to distinguish between asteroids and comets, um, comets are mostly icy objects. So we're used to seeing them leaving trails of dust and plasma as they get near the sun. They're, they're very icy. They've got um, kind of a, a dirty um, a, a co a component to the ice. It's pretty grubby sort of ice. As the, as the sun, as they get near the sun, they warm up and they leave behind a trail of dust, which shows up as a dust tail uh, because it's lit up by the sunlight, uh, but also usually a, a tail of plasma, the, the, you know, the ionized um, gas that is out, outgassed from the, from the ice itself. Asteroids, on the other hand, are not icy generally. They are rocky objects. Um, and we think that many of them are really quite dusty. They're possibly even piles of rubble, really, just, uh, you know, uh, loosely bound uh, piles of rubble held together by their own gravity, but not by very much. But there is an object which uh, has, has been known before to be self-destructing, as it's being described in the press release. Um, and this is now... Um, been observed in a really very elegant way. There's a collaboration of various ground-based telescopes, plus the space facilities, in particular the Hubble Space Telescope, which has given us this fantastic image of what looks like an object streaking through the sky. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's trailed uh, as against the stars. If you take photographs of asteroids, you've got to basically uh, move the camera so it's moving with the asteroid and not with the stars themselves. And that what that does is trails out the stars in the background. So we've got an image that's got short star trails, but this extraordinary little point of light, which is the asteroid, uh, the asteroid itself, with two streaks of debris coming from it, uh, a kind of quite brightly illuminated one, and one that's much longer but uh, much less... Uh, much less uh, well-defined. Uh, and so what uh, is being suggested that this object, uh, asteroid Galt, its name, G-A-U-L-T, uh, it's got a number, 6478 Galt. Um, it's about somewhere in the region of five kilometres across. Uh, and the two, um, the two tails of debris that it's leaving behind um, are basically the result of activity on the on the asteroid itself. Why is it doing it? And the answer is something I was not really familiar with. I'd heard of it, but I, I really wasn't familiar with it. But it's called a Europe talk. I'm so, I'm sorry, a what? <laughs> Quite so. That's the correct answer, Andrew. It's a Yorp, a Yorp talk. So talk, of course, the 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 twisting motion. Um, it's actually called the Yorp effect, and what it does is produces a torque uh, that, that makes an asteroid rotate. Uh, what is the Yorp effect? Well, Yorp 
Y-O-R-P is actually an acronym. Uh, and of in fact, it it's, it's known as the Yarkovsky O'Keefe Radzivsky Paddock effect. That's what it is, named after four scientists. Uh, one actually dating back to the 19th century, Ivan Yarkovsky, uh, who figured out, as, as did the, the other names in that, uh, in that rather gobbledygook acronym, uh, Yarkovsky figured out that uh, if an object is warmed by the sun, uh, that leaks thermal or heat radiation into space uh -huh. and, and it takes off momentum with it. So basically, um, you, you, you apply a force to the asteroid just by the heating effect. And it turns out that that is a twisting force. And so the effect of the YORP, uh, the YORP effect on, a, on an asteroid is to start it spinning. Um, and if you've got an object like uh, this asteroid Galt, which is probably dusty rather than rocky, it's probably a bit of a rubble pile, as it starts spinning, the Yorp effect makes it spin faster and faster. When it gets to a certain level, and I think it's about once every two hours, the turning for an object that size, you get the effect of centrifugal force that that basically pulls off dust and dirt from its surface. And where does that go? Well, it forms a tail, uh, a dust tail, partly because it's pushed back by the radiation pressure of the sun itself. But of course, this thing is also streaking through space. So it leaves stuff behind it. So an extraordinary uh, set of astrophysics that comes from 19th century thinking, but we're seeing it happening in before our very eyes. Something like um, 800,000 asteroids in the main asteroid belt are, are catalogued, Andrew. And uh, the specialists uh, basically estimate that roughly once a year among the asteroids in the asteroid belt, one of these YORP disruptions happens as, as an asteroid spins too fast for its own good and starts falling to bits. But it's an extraordinary uh, situation. Yeah, um, and people shouldn't sort of uh, stay up late waiting to watch it fall, fall apart because this, this could take a very long time. This, this is a slow motion destruction. Yeah, it's not it's not like a collision where things, you know, clag into one another and that's the end of that. It, this is a slow process. But um, it, it the ultimate um, fate of an asteroid like uh, asteroid Galt is basically to be reduced to dust. It will just end up as a as an orbiting dust pile getting more and more dispersed in space. So, and, and will that ultimately happen to all of them or do they all have different fates? I think um, it, it's probably uh, it depends on the size and the makeup of the asteroid. Some asteroids are pretty solid. In fact, some, as you know, there's one called 16 Psyche, uh, which is uh, a really psychotic asteroid, and it's made of metal. Uh, that is not going to fall to pieces because of the Europe effect. Uh, it's too too solid for that. So it just depends on exactly what's going on. So it, it may just sort of go around for billions and billions of years until it hits something or gets deflected into something or who knows? Or just fade. Oh, well, the, what? The metal one, you mean? Yeah. The metal one, yeah, the metal one will last as long as the planets do, I, I think. It, what will wipe it out in the end is the sun turning into a, uh, a red giant star oh, in about of course. three and a half billion years. Mm. I know you've got that in your diary. I, I have, yeah. I even got, uh, it took me a long time to find that particular diary at a stationary <laughs> store, but 
I did ultimately. Very good. Yes, and I had to pay ahead too. <laughs> mm. All right. Well, we'll probably hear more about asteroids down the track because they are fascinating objects and uh, we always seem to find something new and unusual. Uh, and you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here, Fred Watson there, of course. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, let's uh, head into the... Um, the mystery world of answering questions. Uh, we never know what we're going to get. Uh, I, that's what I like about it. People um, have incredible minds and come up with some amazing questions. I love this one. This comes from uh, Sean, uh, who uh, writes to us from India. Hi, Andrew and Fred. Greetings from India. I'm a big fan of your podcast and especially the combination of wit and knowledge coming from both of you. I'm the one with the knowledge, Sean, by the way. <laughs> Uh, I was wondering if there is a possibility possibility that there might have been a planet or two in our solar system's distant past that might have been deviated away from its orbit around the sun and gone rogue. Great question. You and I have talked about rogue planets before, and, and there's a common belief that there are lots of planets out there that aren't orbiting anything. They've just become lost in space, technically. That's right. Yes, indeed. And uh, there's every possibility, uh, Sean, that that happened in our solar system, too. Uh, And, you know, possibly uh, very, very early in the solar system's history, we we know that um, for the first, uh, probably the first billion years, actually, maybe a little bit less than that. But given that the solar system is about 4.6 billion years old, certainly for the first 600 million years, it was a wild and woolly place uh, with lots and lots of uh, debris uh, basically charging around the solar system. The planets themselves were were formed by things banging into each other and sticking together uh, from a disk of material that was what was formed with the sun. So planets... Uh, uh, in fact, in the early days, uh, planets probably came and went quite a lot. They'd, they'd accrete together and then run into something else and smash apart. So what we see now is a really very settled version of the way things were. Uh, but it, it seems likely that quite early in the history of the solar system, when the planets as we now know them were were formed, uh, there were still objects which were in quite delinquent orbits, if I can put it that way. They were, you know, maybe not as well as stable as the orbits of the of the eight planets now. Uh, and in particular, orbits might well have been modified by the, the extraordinary gravitational force of the planet Jupiter. When it grew to be the, the giant of the solar system, it certainly would have had a, an effect on the orbits of other objects within. So, uh, that is, um, you know, the, the 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 basic picture you've got uh, at a time when the solar system is looking more or less like it is now, but but still has a, a bit of a way to go. And it may well have been that at that time there was one, or as Sean suggests, maybe a couple of planets within the solar system that uh, were had orbits that were disturbed by Jupiter. Now, what happened to them? We don't know. Uh, one possibility, uh, and you know, there is a smoking gun here, of course, and that's the the tilt of the planet Uranus. It's tilted right over on its side. That can only have happened because of an impact with something pretty big, probably something the size of the Earth. Um, and so, one of the possibilities of a uh, of a of a planet that's got lost is that it was the object that knocked 
uh, Uranus over, and in that collision was ejected from the solar system. Uh, that's a distinct possibility. And uh, we, you know, we expect to find um, what you might call orphan planets in the solar system. And maybe the sun has got one or two of those that are lost to the sun are now somewhere on their own in interstellar space. We do know that there are objects out there, exactly as you've said, uh, which have no parent uh, star to, to have them orbiting around. It is possible that there are planets that would have formed in that situation from clouds of gas and dust where, you know, places where, where what we call star nurseries, there are, there are uh, stars and planets forming from these clouds of gas and dust. It's possible that at the low mass end of that, individual planets formed with nothing to, to go around. But it's likely that the orphan planets that we observe, at least some of them have come from solar systems, and maybe one of them's come from ours somewhere. So yes, the, the possibility is there. It does throw into question something we've discussed before, and that is Planet Nine. Uh, could, yeah. could it be the rogue planet that we're talking about? It's possible. Uh, planet Nine, a hypothetical world, maybe four or five times the size, the mass of the Earth. Um, why do we think it's there? Because there is there are curious alignments in the orbits of some of the the objects in the Kuiper Belt. This distant asteroid belt, not the one between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, but one beyond the orbit of Neptune. There's a belt of icy asteroids, which we call the Kuiper belt. Uh, that uh, has objects within it which are definitely aligned in their orbits. And the suggestion is that there is a big planet way, way out in the depths of the solar system, which is doing that alignment, which is shepherding them together. And it, it's very likely that that object would have an orbit that's highly elliptical itself. In other words, it's very, uh, very elongated. And so that could be an object that was, you know, um, dealt a blow or some sort of gravitational disturbance early in the history of the solar system, but wasn't thrown out of the solar system itself. It was just pushed into a very long orbit. Yes, so the, the two could be connected. The only way we'll really tie that down is if we actually find Planet Nine, which so far has not happened. No, they're definitely looking for it, but no they joy so far. But uh, as you say, uh, the evidence is strongly suggesting it's there. We just, we just can't spot it. It's not easy to find. No, it's not, because where we think it is is right in front of the Milky Way, which is not a good place to be if you're trying to find a very slowly moving object among the stars. Yes, well... Uh, we will, I think we'll nail it down sooner or later. But I think so too, yeah. And thanks for your question, Sean. Hopefully we answered it, but yeah, you were right on the money. Uh, we'll move on to a question now uh, from India to the United States and hello to Jeremy in San Francisco. He says, hi, Andrew and Fred. I've been a fan for the last couple of minutes, years. Uh, I listen to nearly all of your episodes, nearly all of them, Fred. So he's listened to three. Uh, enlightening and you do a great show. Uh, I've been carrying this question around for years. Uh, never had someone to ask who knows enough in the field to answer. Why are you asking Fred? I've also searched online and checked some videos on the subject, but uh, still don't find the answer. I'd love to know. So the universe is expanding and by redshift, we see the expansion is accelerating. And you've discussed on your show that we know this because we see greater redshift in galaxies that are further away. And we know which are further away because of standard candles. But those furthest away galaxies are the ones 
whose light is sent to us longest ago. How is this incorporated? In other words, why can't we also say the greatest redshift uh, from the light emitted longest ago, therefore expansion was faster longer ago than it is recently, and therefore expansion is slowing? Yeah, it's a great question, Jeremy. And I think I, I, think I get what you're asking. Um, and I think the way to answer this is to forget all about the acceleration, because that's a relatively recent discovery. It was discovered, well, 20 years ago last year. It was discovered in 1998 uh, by, um, well, Brian Schmidt here in, in Australia and a, and a group over in the United States simultaneously. So, but before that, the, the most... Um, the, 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 the bedrock of our understanding was simply the expansion of the universe itself. And that was discovered in 1929. So for, you know, for 70 years, all we really knew was that the universe was expanding. Um, and it, that comes from the, exactly the observation, Jeremy, that you've mentioned. Uh, it's that the further away you look, the greater the redshift of an object. And by that, we mean the greater is its recession away from us. The redshift of an object is it's, uh, it's the way its light is moved to the red end of the spectrum because of the fact that the universe itself is expanding. So um, Hubble's law states that, and I think it's now called uh, the Hubble-Lemaitre law, uh, because Georges Lemaitre was a Belgian priest who was also in, instrumental in this research at the time, back in the 1920s. Anyway, just for now, let's call it the Hubble law. The Hubble law says that the further away uh, an object is, the faster is its recession. And that's just a straightforward observation. But it turns out that if you have a universe that is uniformly expanding, so it's expanding everywhere at the same rate, from your vantage point on one of the objects that's sort of taking part of the expansion, everywhere you look, you see things that, are, that seem to be moving away from you faster the further away that they are. So that observation that the higher the redshift, the greater the distance, in other words, the higher the recession velocity, uh, the greater the distance, that's the basic principle of a uniform expansion. It tells you nothing about whether that expansion has changed. And in fact, the Hubble law in its most basic form says that the expansion has been the same since the beginning. Um, it, it's actually only in the last few years that we've been able to refine that by looking, as Jeremy mentions, at standard candles or standard light sources, which, which are the supernova explosions. And it was those that essentially give you a different way of measuring the distance, which you can use to check the, the Hubble relationship itself. And what you find is that the Hubble relationship is still there, that the further away something is, the greater its redshift is. But there's a very slight change in it, which tells you that uh, at, at about um, you know half the edge of the universe, the expansion started to accelerate, that these things are further away than you would expect them to be. There you are. Answered. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Well, I hope you get that, Jeremy, because it's it's a subtle, uh, you know, effect. But the bottom line is, it's just the basic expansion that gives you the the, the, redshift. the redshift determination. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the speed is not absolutely relevant in the in the uh, in the redshift effect, but uh, 
there's a slight variation that also proves that the acceleration is continuing. It, uh, yes, it's the acceleration that is the, the really subtle observation. That's why it took us till 1998 to discover it. Mm. It's been confirmed many times since then, by the way. It's, uh, so it's it's well well known. Well so, in other words, Jeremy, both are happening. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think it's the short answer. Uh, and thanks for your question. We appreciate it. I hope we covered it. I hope we sort of hit the right nail on the head for you. Uh, and thanks to everyone who's um, sent us questions. We've got some fresh ones in the other day. We'll get to those. Uh, we just thought we'd better get into the backlog because uh, a couple of people um, sent us questions a little while back, so we thought we'd better get onto those. There's a few we're going to have um, to review because they're sort of asking questions that are a little bit out there. So we... <laughs> We might have to think harder about those. Uh, but thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Fred, as always. It's a pleasure, Andrew, and we look forward to being able to share something about the Event Horizon Telescope very soon. Indeed, unless they cancel the press conference. Yeah. <laughs> Which, or, you know, that happens. That happens. Yeah, All right, we'll catch you soon, Fred. Thank you. See you later, Andrew. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.